introduction. <laughs> so we're going to make it a two-part. We're going to make it right chapter three a two-part uh, a two-part class. Um, and I apologize if this one is more basic than the other one. But on the other end, I realize that you know it often happens that um, my laziness and not going back and doing basic stuff means that I missed all sorts of interesting things. So I have all sorts of new discoveries uh, for me, and we'll see if they're if they're, new, they're new to you as well. So I want to talk about. Let me let me set up what chapter three is, and then we'll talk about why I need to introduce it. Chapter three. Uh, is part of a broad thesis about politics in halakha. And the basic thesis is that the power to be strict and the power to be lenient tend to go together, and there's no way to have the power to be lenient if you don't also have the power to be strict. And that people often want to try to have their, their cake and not eat it too, I guess would be the way to frame it. <laughs> uh, so I usually start this one in a public lecture. I usually start just with a joke that many of you may have heard me make before, uh, where I put on a persona of a crusty modern Orthodox balabas. There are two things I can't stand about halakha these days. One is the way halakha is frozen and there's no innovation. Everything has to be exactly the way it was. The other is all the new chumras. <laughs> <laughs> Good for you, right? To get immediately <laughs> that those are uh, that those are not uh, those are not compatible. Uh, compatible positions, uh, but so you know. So if you right, if you that's often what people want. They, we want innovations because we want innovations that that um, create leniencies that we approve of. Right, get things out of our way, whether they're uh, like the really crusty things. My father, Olav Shalom, used to nag me about Yom Tov which really which really really annoyed him. Like, you know, is there any real basis for it? Uh, why is it still there? Um, People get annoyed when I suggest it's probably a typo. Uh, <laughs> different share. <laughs> it might be. It might, it might really be. I've originated. There are certain things that originate from misunderstandings. Um, so people don't find that more religiously edifying. <laughs> um, but, and, you know, but then more immediately, people want radical changes in the issues of you know, marriages and things like that. And I, what I try to argue is, before we talk about the question of whether you're right about this or not, the real question is, could it be pulled off authoritatively? And the reasonable test of whether somebody can pull off a leniency authoritatively is, would you follow them if they tried astringency? And if you wouldn't follow them if they tried astringency, then they probably aren't going to have the authority to pull off a, to pull off a leniency. Um, so then, what, so there's usually a... Uh, particular challenge to that, which is that there is a position which we'll see um, either at the end of this week or the end of next week among Achronim, uh, that we don't have the power to make zerot that uh, post Talmudically. So if we don't have the power to make zerot, meaning we don't have the power to impose new stringencies, then it's plausible to say, well, if we don't have the power to make new stringencies, we obviously don't have the power to make new leniencies, and therefore the whole conversation is over and we get into halacha really is frozen. Um, so the purpose of the article was to undermine the claim that we can't make new xerots, and to argue that there's no technical problem with making new xerots. So that's what I want to get to next week. But in order to address that question, I think we have to first uh, go back and try and figure out what exactly are the various ways in which rabbis can make decrees. It's not it's it's not a it's not a uniform thing. And secondly, um, and secondly. Uh, what are the sources of those various authorities? Then try and figure out how, what those various types of rabbinic legislation are, and how the, what, and what the sources of them are might tie into the question of whether we have authority to make them today. And then, if we can establish next week that we that we that there's a possibility we still have authority to make them today, then we can also talk about well, and how far does that does our power extend to leniencies, as well as uh, as well as stringencies? Okay, is that reasonably clear? Okay, uh, I should say. First credit, uh, first that I first got this idea that uh, rabbinic legislation is uh, rabbinic legislation is variegated, um, by in a share by Rabbi Norman Lamb of blessed memory, uh, he would give a, uh, he, Rabbi, Rabbi Lamb would give a. Uh, yeah, I'm cheering for me. <laughs> there are that. Some, there, there, there are, oh, there, oh, here's what that. Yeah. Uh, Rabbi Lamb would give an annual share um, in the base manager from the from the York site of Dr. Belkin, his his predecessor as YU president. Uh, it was, you know, it was a, a big thing. Everyone had to. Um, grab glasses. Everyone, everyone, everyone. You know, the entire yeshiva would come, and he would give a share to the entire yeshiva. 
and then you'd go back into your shear room and shear room and the various rishis that would rebut. It uh, uh, was always it was always an exciting day. Uh, the problem with Rabbi Lam, uh, as some I guess I believe Nables in this particular context would tell me, is that you couldn't tell until about two days after the shear whether what he had said made sense, because he was such a good speaker. Right. And you could just say, then of course a miracle occurs, right? And you would just say, oh yes, then a miracle occurs. <laughs> and, you know, and two days later, you could say, what? <laughs> then a miracle occurs is not the next stage in argument. Um, so, you know, uh, but in one, of the, in one of those shirts, uh, I think, it, uh, one of those shirts, I think it might have been the uh, early one, he said something uh, which in retrospect was probably not so convincing. It was really cool at the time. There are many reasons it's not convincing. Uh, he was uh, talking about the first Mishnah in Shas, first Mishnah Bracha, the Makloket, about uh, where there's three, three Makloket in the first Mishnah as to how late you can say Kriyachma. Rabbi Eliezer says until Shalosh until three, right, until three, uh, sorry, Rabbi says until a third of the night, right, the Chachamim say until midnight, until Chasot, and the Rabbi Gamliel says until until Allah Hashafa. Um, and in the end, we follow. Uh, in the end, we follow. Um, Rabbi, uh, we follow Rabbi Gamliel, even though he's a, even though, even though he's a minority. And Rabbi Gamliel, tell, and Rabbi Gamliel tells his sons that they're allowed to follow his position, even though it's against the majority position of the sages. So the question Rabbi Lama addressed is, why was he allowed to? Uh, why was he allowed to uh, to tell them that? Why, why, why didn't Rabbi Gamliel have to tell them? You have to follow the position of the sages. So there's a, you know, there's a fancy position which is that um, it's different for your children. There are all sorts of really boring answers which we won't bother getting into. <laughs> uh, or Lavin this really elaborate answer which he said that the um, that the authority that the the idea that you can only say Kriyashma until midnight the Gemara says for the for the rabbis are not saying that because that's how they understand the biblical text. The biblical text means all night, like Rabbi Gamliel says until 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 dawn. But they're trying to prevent you. From uh, from sinning by saying right by falling asleep and forgetting that this is not a, the time of Kriyashma. Now, where do they get the authority to tell you that you're not allowed to say Kriyashma after midnight? Let's take for now the the extreme position, which is uh, associated with the student a work called the, the Students of Rabbeinu Yona, uh, which he says that in fact what the rabbi said is that if you say Kriyashma at night after midnight, whatever midnight halachic midnight is. Uh, then not only right, not only have you done the wrong thing, you actually haven't fulfilled the mitzvah of Kriyashma. So what gives the rabbis the authority to, to, right, to just deprive you of the right, of the, right, not allowed to say Kriyashma afterwards, you don't fulfill the mitzvah, right? where gives the rabbis that authority? So the answer is there's a verse. And the verse says, what's the verse that all of you right now, where does rabbinic authority come from? It's there on the first page of the resource, if you haven't listened to it again. <laughs> right, in bold, right? Uh, right? Uh, right? Don't stray from everything they tell you right away. So, right, last, if you look at the beginning of that paragraph, which I only gave you in Hebrew, the paragraph begins, if something is too, uh, too hard for you, too wonderful for you, then you go to this great Sanhedrin, and, they, right, and then you're obligated to follow their answer. So, by Lamb suggested, ah, but what happens if you think that the verse is so obvious that there's not even a question about what it means? Well, then he said, if the rabbinic authority to make decrees comes from a verse which opens by which saying that, that you have to follow them when they respond to a question which is, which, right, which is too hard, so then when the halacha is obvious, they have no right to make decrees. And that was Rabbi Gamliel held. And Leo held that it was too obvious that the, the verse was so obvious that there's no rabbinic right to make decrees, and therefore he held there was no issue of majority versus minority because majority versus minority only occurs after you agree that there is right that there's a fundamental issue justiciable issue. Where Rabbi Leo held there was no justiciable issue at all because it was obvious that Kriyat went all night and they had no right to make it till midnight. Now this is wrong, Laniyastati, because. In fact, there's a dispute about what the verse means. Rabbi Ezra says it means only until a third of the night. Right. So to say that it's so obvious, the they have to hold the Rabbi Leel said Rabbi Ezra was so obviously wrong that you couldn't even write, you know, okay. Lots of, <laughs> lots of, you know, lots of very, very elaborate moves. Um, you know, so when Rabbi Leel said that, I should have had alarm bells going off in my head saying, oh, that's, you mean that a miracle occurs. And there's a verse which is so obvious that nobody could possibly think of anything to argue about, uh, which is not likely to, uh, not likely to happen. Um, but that's about you know. But for all that, um, for all that, I don't. 
Uh, I forgot to start the recorder. Look at that. <laughs> for all that, uh, um, for all that, I don't find it convincing either. In general, I don't know that there's any other place in big literature where somebody has suggested. It must be an from somewhere, but I haven't found it yet. Anybody who suggests his line that the that the authority to make decrees is is limited by the uh, right to verses where there is some issue of interpretation. And secondly, I don't know any you know it, the, the notion that that was a verse which there is no question of its interpretation is is implausible on the on the face of it. Nonetheless, it opened up to me uh, you know this whole world that the idea that there are different sources of authority for uh, for uh, rabbinic sources. Yes. Yes, right. Great, right. We have much more fun talking about Rabbi but never cared about the majority. Right. He always just followed his own opinion. Right. How do you? Right. Yeah. Many, many reasons that this was not a convincing. Uh, this was not a convincing share, but it was the first year I ever heard from my lamb, so it was memorable, and uh, and I you know and I liked the uh, the you know the, uh, the the I guess the chutzpah of saying you know, there's, there's a way which you can just hold your opinion by saying the other people don't count at all because they're completely out, right? Because I deny their basis of authority, uh, right? So that was a uh, right you know that and the, this is the kind of idea that people come up with often to explain like why do we hold on to Judaism when Christianity is a majority religion, right? Why don't we say that it follows the majority, right? These are all sorts of all sorts, all right. So that, you know, this kind of notion of finding ways to, to to hold the right of a minority against the fundamental principle majority rule is valuable in all sorts of other contexts. I enjoyed it. Okay. Um, so we're going to get to where the, the text of Elam uh, cited for that. Obviously, the Chachamim, in his view, are right, either the easy way is to hold that um, is to say that they think the verse is is controversial, which is true. But we can have an even fancier one by saying no, no, no. They think that the authority for decrees comes from a different verse entirely. Which does not have this limitation. That's where we're going to end up uh, going. Even though I was not uh, convinced by Ray Lamb's initial presentation, and neither were any of the other panelists. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it still, it was cool. It was really cool. Uh, it was, it was productive. Uh, the Rosenzweig likes to say, an analogy from the Mitziv that um, Mitziv sometimes talks about how, like, you're, you're, you're rubbing your sticks together to produce a fire in one context. And you don't light a fire in this context, but a spark shoots off somewhere and lights something else. Like something that happens in Torah. <laughs> You're desperately rubbing the sticks together in this sugya, and nothing happens in this sugya, but a spark goes off, and all of a sudden something else, uh, something else lights up. So uh, you know, it's, it was worth the effort. Okay, so first number one is 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 this um, it, a possible source number one is this is this text which. I gave you a part in bold, which, but there's really lots in, because that's the only part that's used by subsequent sources. But really, you can see right that there, it goes through a lot of detail as to what sorts of cases you should bring. There's tension in the verse, which we're not going to get into about whether you bring it to the high priest or you bring it to the, you bring it to the Sanhedrin Agadol, or the Sanhedrin Agadol has to be made entirely of priests. And all that, all that gets dealt with halakhically. All that matters to us is at the end of it says. On the basis of the Torah, which they direct you, what the difference is in Torah and Mishpat, who knows? Right? You have to act on, right? that sounds like a positive commandment, whatever they tell you, do. And then it says, and Don't stray from what they tell you. Right? So we have a positive commandment and a negative commandment, you have to listen to whatever they tell you. Okay. But that might just mean you have to listen to whatever they tell you uh, right, and this part from Rilam is right. You, know, you have to listen to what they tell you about what the Torah means. It doesn't necessarily mean that they have to right that you have to listen to them when they say things because they think it's a good idea. Right? And this is because you have a question. But right, if it's just a matter of policy, where do they get that idea? Second question you have to address is. Is does right does is this power absolutely limited to a Sanhedrin Hagadol in Jerusalem, sitting in the chamber of the Hewn Stone, or does it apply, uh, or does it apply to uh, generations where there is no such central rabbinic authority? Right, this is a, a fundamental problem in in Orthodox uh, self construction over the past um, over three hundred years. Right, since the fundamental authority of Allah got challenged by the early Reform movement, uh, the challenge was like so what. What authority should rabbis have nowadays if the verse is limited to the great Sanhedrin? And there are many approaches to that, all of which are beyond our scope uh, in this year. Just you should be aware of that because that's in the background. Okay. So now, how do we get this, or does this relate in any way to 
things beyond interpretation. Um, so the Gemara in Shabbat 23, this is verse number 2, asks the question, what bracha do you make on Nerot Hanukkah? And the answer is, you make, as we all know, a shirkishad of this hotel, who sanctifies it as commandment, and commanded us to light Nerot Hanukkah. But the problem is that nowhere in the Torah does God command us, or in fact, even nowhere in Nacht, right? Because Hanukkah happens after, uh, right after Tanakh. So there isn't any kind of prophetic text which can tell us you have to light the you have to light Hanukkah candles. How can we say who already sanctified his commandments and ordered us and commanded us to do this? So Rav Avia says he commanded us from this verse, Lo Tasur. Don't stray from what they tell you left or right. And then um, Rav Nachemia says, no, it comes from Sha'alavicha Vyagedcha, Zekeinecha Vyomrulach. Right? Ask your father and your and your elders and they'll tell you. Okay, Rav Nachemia pretty much disappears from history. Uh, although it seems like a right, in, really interesting claim. Of course, in context, Shalavicha Vyagedcha is talking about, you know, it's talking about historical context, right? Probably. You know, has anybody ever done something like this, right? Things like that. So it's a good reason to reject Rav Nechemia's claim that this is halachic. On the other end, um, Rav Avia requires a great Sanhedrin, but it's not such a big deal. We could have had a great Sanhedrin in the time of, right, in the time of, the, uh, of Hanukkah. Right? So all good. Okay, so here we have an extension, right? That the right to issue decrees comes from Lotasur. And then if we want to extend the right to issue decrees to anyone else, we'll have to have the same problem we have extending rabbinic authority over interpretation. Yeah. Ask your parents and they'll tell you. I mean, it's in the Torah, it tells you to command, ask your parents and it says they'll tell you. And we're just going to turn parents and zikinim, right? Zikinim are going to turn into rabbis. You can say Sivanus. No, you say Sivanus. Well, yeah. Okay, so, right, so, you, so you want to put Rabbi Lamb's interpretation into this verse, right? And say, no, it's only if they ask you a question. Yeah, you know, ask them generally what to do with whatever they tell you to do. do. No. Maybe I'm, I I can't tell you much about Rabbi Nachemia because I say you know as far as I know he mostly vanishes uh, from halachic history. For the, our purposes this week, okay. we're going to just deal with the Rambam and the Rambam he, he never shows up at all, right. so far as I know. Uh, right? You know when you get to be president of the university, you get to give a shear. Right? So no, right. <laughs> <laughs> there's your right. You can reclaim Rabbi Nachemia's position. Okay, so that extends it. That extends it. Now it could be. Right, now, we haven't seen it, right? So, intuitively, we can make a distinction between interpretation and legislation. But right now, right, so right, but we, we have no basis so far for distinguishing among kinds of legislation. Right, so, and maybe if they can create a mitzvah and say, so then the rabbis can do whatever they want. Whatever they tell you have to do. But there seems to be, um, there's a possibility that there is another kind of rabbinic authority. So let's take a look at a Gemara in Brachot, uh, one of my favorite Gemaras. Right? There's a Brita which says, Great is human dignity, because it pushes aside, uh, and there's really no way to, right, uh, it gives away the sugya if you say, a lotase in the Torah, uh, right? because we, you're supposed to think all lotase is in the Torah, all, right? all do, all do nots. Um, but in the end, the Gemara says well, the Gemara has a, has a, has, is working off a prior statement which says that really whatever God says goes, human dignity is irrelevant against it. So, said, so what are you doing here? Right, let's say let's, let's quote our proof text for that, which is an interesting interpretation of a verse uh, of a verse that's saying that you know that everything counts as nothing against God. So, so Rav Barshava comes in front of Kana and says what they said is that human dignity pushes aside a specific biblical. Do not statement, and that is don't stray. Okay, so now human dignity overrides don't stray. At which point, they laugh at him, and there's different ways to understand this, so I'm going to read it one, one of those ways. And they say, hang on a sec, there's no difference between that do not and any other do not, right? The commandment do not stray is a biblical command, so if human dignity pushes aside that biblical command, it should push aside all biblical commands. You haven't solved our right... Right, you haven't solved our problem at all. You haven't given us a reason why it pushes aside this one and not all the others. So Rav Kahana says, Rav Barshava says, a great man said something. Don't laugh at him. Why? Because all rabbinic matters were asmechinhu. 
on but on Lotasur. And because of human dignity, the rabbis permitted it. So what is us mechinhun? Us yes. Pardon? They're hooked onto, right? They're leaned against, right? They, right? They, right? The verse is right as a support for us, but it's not really deoraisa, because the whole point is, right? You said this. There's no difference about the do not stray. It's just like all the other ones. No, it's different. So there isn't because these things aren't really prohibited by do not stray. They're just sort of leaned against it. Now, if we say that do not stray is enough to enable you to say God commanded us. That sounds like you really are including it in the biblical category. So now it's so the only way to get out of this is to claim, well, you know what? There are some things that are included in a uh, that are that are that are included in the biblical category, and there are some things which are not. And Lotasur functions in two different ways. Sometimes it really gives the rabbis right the authority to say what the Torah means, even if they're legislating. Right, the, the Torah means whatever, do whatever the rabbis do. And sometimes there's this this nebulous area of rabbinic authority that is just sort of Connected to that biblical text, but isn't quite the same. Yes. Yes. Right. So you. So now, from a historical perspective, and we'll see. Right. You know, it could be that the distinction between Doraita and Darbanan is not inevitable, and is not built into Allah at all. Uh, right, it could right. You could you could, right, could be that at one point halacha, right? Halacha, you know, everything was uh, everything was deoraisa, and everything the rabbi said was in some sense an interpretation of Torah. So why would you make the distinction? And the category rabbinic is a, itself a rabbinic invention designed to right, create some kind of formal differences between their interpretations, but not actually distinguish distinguish in terms of authority. But the rabbis wanted to create areas of the law where if there was a doubt, you should be lenient instead of stringent. They said, we'll create this area of law called rabbinic in which that is the law. But actually, it has no different authority. We could, right, we could, we could construct the universe like that. Um, and there's, right, that's a, a whole, you know, historians are fairly complicated, and we'll see, right, that um, there's a statement, right, of, right, in the beginning of Turkey vote, which we'll get to, right, the, the third thing the, the men of the Great Assembly say is, build a, right, make a hedge around the Torah. So that suggests that they're the first ones who did it. And if that means make rabbinic decrees, so that suggests that maybe there weren't any previously. Okay, there are going to be exceptions, like right, Shlomo HaMelech decrees in Tilat Yadayim, right? so we're going to have to figure out what the, right, how, we fit, how we fit those exceptions or not. But um, yeah, you're right. But the obvious problem, right? So from the first sugya, it sounds like there's no difference between rabbinic and biblical law because we say Asher Kishanam Bisotav Sivanu about Hanukkah. And the second thing is says, no, it's really essential to preserve that difference. And some rabbinic things are attached to do not stray, but they're not really the, what the verse means. So what sort of authority do they have? Who has authority over them, right? What is this, what is this whole universe? Okay. Let's take a look at source four, because now we're going to find a third possible source, and this one does not disappear. Okay, so there's a verse in Vayikra which says, Ushmartem et mishmarti. So that obviously right, you're using the same the same shorish, that's right, shamar and shamar. So you should guard, right, you should be shomer, the thing which I guard. Something like that. There's that right, there's a there's a right, so what is it that we're supposed or the thing right, what is it we're supposed to do if we right sounds like we're putting an additional guard on something that God God has already put a guard around. So what does that mean? So the Gemara Nibamot uh, asks the following question. How do we know, right, there, there are a whole, the Torah gives a list of relatives whom it's in, insects to have, right, to have relations with. But Allah includes a list of secondary relatives within it. So the Gemara, so the Gemara, Rav asks, Where do we get an idea in the Torah, uh, from the Torah itself, that all these, these relationships which are not mentioned in the Torah are also insects? So he first, he, Rav gives a clever answer that the scripture says because, um, because all those abominations the Canaanites did. So in general, whenever it says those, Allah says, aha, those as opposed to some other. So as right, so we say, if all if the, the Canaanites did all those abominations, well, there must be other abominations. And probably it makes sense to say those abominations are the most severe ones, but there are other abominations that are a little bit softer. That's exactly right. That's the 
That's Rava's interpretation. That's how we get the secondary prohibition. But now, Amrle Abayla Rav Yosef, Sabai asks Rav Yosef, Rabbi Safar's question. Right? No, actually, right? Actually, uh, that sounds like a biblical. That sounds like a biblical derivation. So, right? What you're not, you're not, right? You're not. Then it shouldn't be like a remez. It should just be there. So the answer he gives is Yeah, you're right. It's biblical, but it took rabbinic interpretation. Okay, which the answer is say what? All things in Torah require right? That doesn't create a distinction. You want to find a way in which, in which these secondary relations are not quite the same as the primary relations in terms of incest? You haven't done that, because claiming that it's rabbinic interpretation of Torah, rabbinic interpretation of Torah is what we mean by Torah. Which the answer is saying, Ela midrabanan, ikra asmachta be'alma. Okay, so no, really, they're just rabbinic, and this verse, Ishmarti, is the peg on which we hang rabbinic. Okay, I thought Lotasur was the thing on which we hung the rabbinic decree. I mean, the second story, is this the same kind of decree as the other? Right? How, does, how does this relate to Hanukkah? How does it, right, how does it relate to whatever decrees it is that, that the rabbis permit in, order, right, in the case of human dignity? Okay, so now we have two verses in play, and we have three cases. We have Hanukkah and other mitzvot like Hanukkah that we make that bracha on, Megillah, um, possibly Halal Rosh Kodesh if you're Sephardi, Michael C. showing up, uh, or how all generally, right? Um, is any, right? And the, um, then we have the kind of general, ne- we have the general decrees that can be relaxed because of human dignity. We don't know what those are, but there are a lot of decrees we can relax because of human dignity apparently. Let's say, for example, um, walking through a field in which a corpse uh, was once buried, and we don't know if there are still enough pieces of the corpse left to create, to create a tumor. So that's right. So in order to not have a uh, not have a mourner with a coin walk alone, you can accompany right, a coin. A coin can walk with them through. The, right, not have the mourner walk alone. A coin can walk through that kind of field with them, even though normally it's a rabbinic violation. Right. So that sounds like a standard thing we call the rabbanan. You're not right. Kohanim are not allowed to walk right, walk through cemeteries. This is might or might not be a cemetery. Right. So we right. So that's a doubtful thing. And then we have this special category. We don't know whether it's special or not, which is the secondary kind of incestuous relationship. They might have different sources. They might have the same source, uh, right? We have two verses in play. Okay, one other Gemara. Now we're now now we're, sorry, that, that's the end of the Gemaras. Now we're going to get to Maimonides. Maimonides is talking about this um, this that that by Mishnah Abba one one where the, the men of a great assembly say make a fence around the Torah. And Maimonides, in his commentary to the Mishnah, says, "What is the fence around the Torah? What this means are the gzerot and takanot which distance a person from transgression." It means that right, all the rabbinic decrees that distance a person from transgression. And he quotes a verse, and he quotes our verse. This one, Shmartem Nishmarti, not Lotasur. Okay, so Imani seems to think there's a category of things called siag or fence. And those things are seem like, which he says, are intended to distance a person from sin. And those things which are intended to distance a person from sin, they come from Ushmartem Nishmarti. And not from Lotasur. Okay, if you're if we're in Rabbi Lamb's fancy thing, right? So this is the riot, this is the proof that somebody could have derived the the, the prohibition against uh, the prohibition against saying Kriyashma after midnight from this verse, which is not dependent on questions. Um, and in fact, the language as you all know, is exactly what Rabbi Gamliel says in the first Mishnah, so, right, so we can tie everything together in a really neat little bow. Um, yes. Okay, so that's an excellent, right? It's excellent we could distinguish it and say that the right that congregants have to listen from Lotasur, rabbis have to tell them things that they have to listen to. Um, right, by um, because of Shmartan and Shmarti. Um, I guess that would be an interesting reason for Ramam to compromise it, but Ramam here is just explaining 
why did the, then the Great Assembly tell their, right, say we have to make fences around the Torah because we have a verse that tells us we have to do it. And then why do you, why do you have to listen? You have to listen because of a different verse. That would be very cool. That would be very cool. Yeah, we're going to go through all the Ramos. We're going to go through all the Ramos. But that's, right, that's, a, that's, a, that's, a very nice, uh, that's a very nice possibility. Okay. So we are just right now, as Maimonides quotes, one of the verses, not the one we would have expected. He quotes it in general about Zerah and Takanot, even though the Gemara only quoted it about the specific case of the secondary, secondary incestuous relationships. Marty has an interesting way of reconciling them. Let's go on and see, right, and see if we can sustain it. Right, so we'll get, turn on to source 7. So we just read Maimonides' introduction to the... We just read Maimonides' commentary to the Mishnah Avot. Now we're going to read his introduction to the overall Mishnah. In, in his introduction to the overall Mishnah, uh, the Ramam talks about five kinds of laws that are set out in post-biblical halachic collections right, or, tra- or traditions. The first is what he calls halacha l'moshem Sinai, which are things that have no scriptural basis at all. The second are things that are mikubal l'moshem Sinai, and those are things which are, uh, right, which are interpretations of the Torah that go back to Moses. Okay, this is not usually done much outside of the context of studying Rambam, so it's worth making that distinction again. For him means things that go back to Moses and have no basis in text at all. They're the things that God whispered into Moses' ear at Sinai. Here, here's the Torah, and by the way, here are a few others. They don't have to be black and square. Right? Why they are, no one ever knows like, why those things right, got left out of the Torah and just, <laughs> just got put in, but there they are. Right? They're not, you, you would think that they'd be really big things. No, it's still don't have to be black and square. Maybe still don't have to be Black and square somehow changes, you know, changes the universe in all right, really dramatic ways. Um, okay. Um, the second round is a separate category of the fundamental halachic meaning of the biblical verse. Uh, and there he, right, um, which he thinks also is, um, right, is a tradition going back to Sinai. Um, that there's always a fundamental meaning of a verse that can't, that, um, that it should not be should not be subject to dispute because it should be live tradition. He claims there's no there's no there's no. You know, then everyone tries to figure out like how do you explain all this? In these two categories, he claims there's no dispute, and everyone tries desperately to explain thousands of exceptions. <laughs> I think it's famous uh, Tabot Year 192. I think that goes that tries to go through exceptions one by one and explain why none of the things which sound like they're saying they're this are really th- are really that. And so in the end, Maimonides' principle is intact, but he has no example. Right, anything which wouldn't be one of those two things, right? Is uh, okay. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but yeah. Um, I don't know how you how you resolve it. Many many efforts to resolve it. The third category are things that are derived um, not where the interpretation of the Torah is not a function of tradition, but a function of analysis, and specifically a function of the formal rules of exegesis. Right. So, right. So we always talk about the thirteen Midot of Rabbi Ishmael because we read those in Davening every day, but Probably some of you know, right, that we don't actually, those are not actually the rules we use, uh, right, because of the dispute between Rabbi Ishmael and Rabbi Akiva, and those are Rabbi Ishmael's rules, but we pass them like Rabbi Akiva, we use a totally different system. Um, nonetheless, Rabbi Akiva didn't write a cool Mishnah, uh, <laughs> right, so, right, so, which, you know, which, so the, uh, right, so the, um, so, you know, so we still, everyone still recites Rabbi Ishmael's rules uh, from memory, well, but just know how follows Rabbi Akiva's rules. Now ask me, can you tell me the difference between Rabbi Ishmael's rules and Rabbi Akiva's rules? No. Because we don't really understand either of them terribly well enough, let alone the difference. <laughs> right, the very subtle differences between whether your basis is qual with prat or your basis is riboy and mute. Uh, people, you know, that would be a whole, you know, a whole separate course to try and see if it's possible to recover what they mean. Okay. Um, the fourth category, right, here we go, right, fourth category, are these are the laws that the prophets and sages of every generation establish as a fence or hedge for the Torah. And here again he says, this, right, this, right, these are the laws Hashem commanded us to do generally when he said, Shemir my Mishnaret. So he thinks that these kinds of laws that are established as a fence or a hedge, they come from the verse in Vayikra, not from Lokasur. And these are the laws that Chazal called Xerot. Right, the things that Chazal called Xerot come from Mishnaret and Mishmarti. And then he says something really interesting. He says, look, whether you can cook chicken and milk, that's a classic Xerot. You can't cook, right, should we be able to cook chicken and milk. Well, the reason we don't let you cook chicken and milk is because we're afraid if we allow you to cook chicken and milk, we'll let you, right, you'll come to cook beef and milk. That's a classic rabbinic zero. He says, you know what? 
I, I think that's really the size is really important. It says, um, but some among them did not favor this trade. Uh, there were rabbis who, right, they were among the rabbis, people who said, what? Why would people be more likely to confuse chicken with beef than fish? Because everyone knows the difference. There's no prohibition, right? There's no prohibition against cooking fowl in milk. Why would anyone, right? Well, why would anyone think that, right? Because I can cook fowl in milk, I can cook beef. Yeah. What I, what I kind of intuited is that, that the eliminate the risk. So actually affirmatively people don't confuse chicken with beef. But in a society where there's not even then is there a risk uh, of let's let's not assume that shrimp honey means that yet. Okay. <laughs> okay, you're reading ahead? Good for you. <laughs> but let's get there first. Okay. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure. I'm assuming that. I'm not sure yet. Okay. Okay. So he says, right, so the, the Chachamim forbade forbade um, right chicken and milk in order to to keep you separate from the real forbidden thing, which is cooking, which is eating uh, or cooking um, beef in uh, beef, uh, beef and milk, but there were among them some who did not see, who did not um, were not convinced by this zera. Uh, how do we know this? Because Rabbi Yossi Aglili allowed, right? Rabbi Yossi Aglili is very common. He allowed cooking, e- eating, cooking chicken and milk, eating chicken and milk, right? All fine. And in the place of Rabbi Yossi Aglili. Um, right in the place of Yosei they followed his position. Okay, now here's the fascinating thing: is we could have easily said, I think I always, till I read this, I always understood it this way. The halacha about whether to whether chicken and milk was right is forbidden or not was decided a thousand years before for Akiva and Rabbi Yosei and then they had a fight about what the halacha was, like all other halachic fights, right? So. Right, so in the place, right, so when they were arguing about what the, the past halakha was, so you can follow your rav and you can follow your rav. But Imanides doesn't seem to read it that way. What he says is that this was a live dispute about whether to make, not whether there had been a decree, but whether there was a decree. And because Rabbi Yossi, right, friend? Say that distinction again. That, right, that... There's a difference between, let's say, you know, uh, right, and I could have an argument, right, about whether it's rabbinically rabbinically prohibited to um, use a COVID test on Shabbat, mm-hmm. right? But we're arguing about what the law in the past was. We're not arguing about whether to forbid it, mm-hmm. right? About whether it's forbidden by past law. So that's what I would have thought the chicken, right? The dispute between Yosef Aglili and the rabbis about chicken and milk is, right? We all, they all agree there was a past law, they just disagree about what it was, and then. There'd be nothing exceptional about being able to follow Rabbi Yosef Aglili in his in his in his place because okay, right, you follow your rabbi unless there's a vote. But so the way the Ramah sets it out is there was a live dispute about whether to make this decree. Rabbi Yosef Aglili dissented from the initial decree, and because he dissented from the initial decree, his space was exempt from it. He agreed that the decree perhaps that the decree applied everywhere else. Because those rabbis had made a decree. But he didn't make the decree, so it didn't apply in his place. That, to me, is a radical idea. Right, that this so what happens to majority rule? And so we can always solve the problem of majority rule by saying they, never, they didn't take a vote. Right? Majority rule only applies basically a lot. We now create all sorts of issues for us in modernity. We're not, we're not you know, as to how we, we have to create some kind of you know, fictional vote or implicit vote. Or yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll, have to, I'll do that. But the simple solution is that majority rule applies only once there's a vote. But until there's a vote, it sounds like Maimonides says, you can make decrees that are local. And they're binding. But they're only binding on the places where the decree is, where the rabbis of that place agree. And that suggests that the authority to make decrees is not in any way dependent on the great Sanhedrin. Because the Great Sanhedrin would be a centralized meaning we should have a vote and that we should follow the majority rule. It should apply everywhere. So it seems to me that Ananias here is explicitly creating, right, um, creating space for that the authority to issue decrees is not dependent on the Great Sanhedrin at all. Um, and yet it still comes from, it seems, from Mishmeret, the Mishmarti. 
If you clear it, trade the Cody Well, what you're describing, it sounds a little more like Cardi to issue universal decrees versus Cardi to issue local decrees. Well, so what I'm, what, the way I'm reading this section now is, right, he's, he just says there's a general category called zeros. Mm-hmm. And then he says, well, some of those zeros, and he said there can be disputes about that. And he lists a whole bunch of disputes, which, we, which I didn't bother including. And he says, look, and sometimes the, dis- right. the dispute is why. But he doesn't ch- say that's a new category. He just includes it as part of the general category of Zerot, which he derives from Mishmerit and Mishmerit. So I don't, so I'm arguing. Mm-hmm. He doesn't see it as fundamentally different. Right? He just sees that you, know, that, you know, you have authority over whom you have authority over. The last line says, right, when everybody agrees, so then it's universal. Mm-hmm. And when not everybody agrees, so then it's wherever your authority extends to. Right? That's what I want to, that's what I want to argue in already. I think he opens up a whole universe here. Um, you know, you have to buy that that's that, right? So you go, go home and read it again. And see if I'm right, right? That uh, I would argue that the way he reads it is that uh, right. The key line is in Mehem Mishlo near eight log zerazu. There were some for whom that making making this decree did not seem fit. Right? Not right. Not sure. Not that I didn't hear about the decree. Not that I didn't think it had been made. But this decree did not find right. Did not seem correct to them to make. Okay, but then. Ramanides then puts in another ca- right. It says by the way, but th- this doesn't use up the category. Of rabbinic decrees, so there's a fifth category of law, and these are laws. He says shenasu b'derech ha'yun v'hasdarat inyanim shabain bnei adam. So we should realize that we're dealing with a Hebrew translation of the Arabic text. So I can't give you the. I didn't. I, I was. I was sloppy. I didn't look up all the, the translations to see what's happening here. I assume this is the Kafa translation, uh, which is the later translation, uh, in general, right, the, the modern translation, and of the uh, generally assumed to be that of the the last. Version of the of the Mishnah Torah of the commentary of the Mishnah, Ramadis begins writing the commentary of the Mishnah when he's a teenager. Uh, he's still editing it at the end of his life. Uh, we have a manuscript which we believe is his his first immigration of of it. And you can see that over time he, if this is correct, that he changes it to match his later positions as he develops positions in the Mishnah Torah. He changes the commentary of the Mishnah to match that. But he doesn't get them all. So there's still leftover leftover places where he forgot to change them. We'll get into special history for him. Okay, but it's uh, right. So, but I haven't checked so at least at this last stage. Um, he says there's another category of law, and this category he says that they're not made. They're made b'derech ha'iyun v'asarata aninim should ain't bnei adam davar she'ain v'hosafa al divrei Torah lo giraon. So they're not related directly, I think, in any way to existing biblical law. So they're not like decrees that's designed to protect an existing biblical law. These are general attempts to organize society. Uh, an arrangement of personal matters. They're not relate, right? They're just rabbinic ideas of what good legislation would be. So there's an interesting language, right? Tikkun ha'olam, which we all, we, we all think we know what that means. <laughs> and then being a hadas. Uh, right? So somehow, right, ways in which, um, in which it's necessary for Halacha, religious halacha to work properly, you need to you, you need to you need to move things around somehow. Like for example, the decree that you can't um, you can't allow husbands to invalidate a a uh, to invalidate a get that they sent to their wife, uh, not in the presence of the agent whom they sent, because that way the wife ends up thinking she's divorced when she's not, and she ends up remarrying. Right. So right. Right. So that even though. There's nothing in the law which says it doesn't, you, that doesn't work. You can't do that because it messes up the world. Those are things that the sages call as opposed to xerot. There's that word again. You can't, you can't ever violate them. Whether that means that it's offered suggested under any circumstances or in light of the previous thing, even if, they were, even if you disagreed with their pur- with their purpose, Here's a new chain. No rabbis. They have a consensus of the population associated with them. Uh, now here he doesn't mention any kind of subcategory of things that are accepted by some places and not others. Does that mean it doesn't exist? Places. Uh, so we know that right that we have all sorts of decrees by cities upon each other, local populations upon each other. Right. So it sounds like there's a 
may, maybe we could fit it in also, and there are decrees, that, but these decrees are not a function of rabbinic power, they're a function of popular acceptance. Probably not. Probably not, right? You can have to write it after it requires consent of the decrees. Yeah. But if there's some kind of universal consensus, then nobody can find their way out of it. Uh, okay. And then he quotes another verse. <laughs> if you break a, a fence, then you'll be you get bitten by a snake. So right, so that sounds like very consistent. This depends entirely on popular acceptance. So it has no uh, it has right. It has no real rabbinic authority behind it at all. Uh, but now, what are the parameters between this and the gzerot he said earlier? How do these relate to a mis the, the kind of mitzvot he talked about? Right? Is is this what nerchanaka is, or is nerchanaka a third category entirely? It's not a gzerah. It's not right. It's a mitzvah. So you can say that really there are three kinds of categories. Right? There are gzerot. There are takanot minhagot. And there are mitzvot, and mitzvot may become from right. Well, uh, from Lotasur, and Xerot might come from Lotasur or might come from Ushmartan Ushmarti, and then these things which come Ushmart which come from nowhere. Yes, Rashad. Yeah, I think I was reading this on the back of my notes, but I think the first Interesting. Right, it could be Das Torah, but Das Torah with consent of the governor. Right. It's like, so it's like, right, exactly. It's sort of a Das Torah of how we practice life. It's not like a Muslim meat. Yeah. Now, I think what you're right is that it's a, it's a kind of authority that is not related to formal, to pre-existing formal halakha. So it has to be related to some kind of broad sense of values. And I think you're right. Right. So that, and that's a big thing that, 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 that you know, that, if you want to run a society, then you have to somehow give authority. Now you can say, you know what, that authority doesn't relate to rabbis, that authority relates to elected officials. And he doesn't tell you it's rabbis here, right? Uh, right? right? He just says there's this thing called Takarot Minagot that get their authority because of popular acceptance. Well, he quotes this. Is that what right? would be some example? What would be an example? So I talked about the, uh, the prohibition against husbands. Uh, Right, the idea that you have to uh, support the um, you have to support the poor of the of the Gentiles together with the poor of the Jews, which is right. Maybe maybe that that's Darkei Shalom, but maybe right. Maybe that's also Kitzun Olam. Mm -hmm. um, sumptuary laws, uh, right? You know, let's, let's say right, say right, you know, we can't we can't tell our kinfolk. Social costs on the poor, all sorts of things like that. You know. And the thing is, they're malleable because you can always claim, well, that's just an extension of, of stuck in Gilu Chasodim, right? Mm -hmm. But he seems to think that there's a separate category. Okay, so I wanted to, right, so I want to set up for you, right, that you have, that we can divide the authority for non Yoraita law, let's say, right? And not just Minhag, right? We're not just talking about self accepted, private customs, right? But binding law, right? You have, right, you can talk about it at least, you can. You can talk about at least three different kinds. You can talk about the establishing positive religious commandments. You can talk about establishing, extending, uh, extending biblical, pro uh, extending prohibitions to protect the biblical. And then we can talk about you know, what the Rishabar calls das Torah, uh, right? Just the authority to generally organize the society properly. And then we'll have to ask for each of those, right? So, if we want to run a society properly, now. Orthodox society, Alachic society. So, which of those authority, which of the, what degree of those authorities do we need? Um, okay, so let's, let me give you one more example, then we'll finish, right? Then we want to serve Mars, um, right? Just for a minute. And maybe this will take three classes, <laughs> uh, which is good. Thank you. I learned, you know, questions were great, and I'm still learning. And this is just Rambam, like, I'm, I'm trying not to complicate it. Um, legal systems. To function, need to be right. There need to be ways in which they can adapt. Because right, otherwise, you get right, that. That I think is a given. The only question is how you do it. And sometimes, you know, because you're making a point about not having authority, you'll make things a little clunkier. So there's a classic clunky workaround uh, in in halacha, uh, which is that there's certain kinds of law 
that can only be done by people with real smicha. Real smicha means that um, means that Moses put his hands on somebody, and that somebody put his hands on you. Yes, right, and said you have the authority to allow to do it. With a with two other right, two other people who made or went out of smicha with you, all that sort of things, right? Everyone agrees that real smicha died out somewhere before the medieval period. Right, right, it's just gone by then. Attempt to recreate it in the 16th century, but it's gone between the, but it, it doesn't work, so it's gone. What do we do? What do we do with area, right? For example, you can't judge, uh, you can't judge cases of theft unless you're a Samir. What do we do? We're living in another society in which we can get away with theft because we can't judge cases of theft. Does anybody know what the solution is? The solution the article is a thing called which means that we hypothesize that the last Samach, just before disappearing from the world, appointed read all subsequent rabbinic generations as his agents to judge all such cases. And so we can still judge such cases, but only we judge them as agents and not as independent beings. Now that creates all sorts of clunkiness. Right? Many, many clunkiness and many, many different Torah are given about what are the things we can and can't do as an agent. And we didn't do this for everything. We say only for only for things that are essential. Right? So, so we let some things go into abeyance and not other things. That's an example. Like this is a, a massive clunky workaround. Um, right, uh, you know, to create, you know, which is totally early unconvincing. But um, uh, but um, right. So the question, you know, so right. So the question is how much, how essential is the capacity to make the truth? And is it right? And do we think that we ju- that it just functions as it always did, or do we have to come up with clunky workarounds? And we come up with clunky workarounds, right? Do we, right, right? What kind of limitations will those clunky workarounds put on us? Right, so that's the question I want to be addressing at this point, though, perhaps in a, maybe a half, uh, perhaps maybe halfway through its through its uh, class, or maybe a week. Yeah. Okay. Thank you very much again. Yeah, yeah, hold on, sir. Sheets. I'll make more of it next week, in any case, but you can have them and you can jump ahead. Um, you'll see that, you know, that, that that one gets complicated. Meeting next week? Uh, yeah, I believe we're meeting right. I, I don't plan to be out of town until. There will be a job conference this afternoon, but she'll be Okay. Thank you. Uh, in advance, I'll be out. Okay, well, I'll try to post.